Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. If you're a guest with us, my name's Kelly. Special welcome to you. Hope you quick you feel quickly at home. As Sherry started this morning by reflecting on our need for hope. One of the ways that we can tell whether or not we're finding hope in Christ and God's provision for us in Christ is by what we set our focus on, what our heart's desiring, what we're longing for. This morning we wrap up the Ten Commandments. We're on the Tenth Commandment. We've been in Deuteronomy chapter 5 for at least 10 weeks now. The Tenth Commandment is on the screen, and it addresses the desires of our heart. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. On what are our desires set this morning? This command's a little bit curious when compared to the other commandments offered in that it does not address directly an act, a behavior so much as a heart's disposition, right? The, the sixth commandment, don't murder, don't do that with your hands, don't take another person's life. The seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. The eighth, don't steal. The ninth, don't lie, don't say an untruth out of your mouth, right? But the 10th commandment, the tenth commandment is a desire. Don't set your affections, your heart on something that is not yours. Remember that the Ten Commandments served as a civil code, a criminal code even, for the nation of Israel, which makes this Tenth Commandment all the more curious in that how do you prosecute someone's inappropriate desires? What is God doing by prohibiting something that no one could possibly police? Accept him. God knows the desires of our hearts. And so in prohibiting a desire, this final command, God's giving a clear indication that even when no other human knows what's going on internally, sometimes we don't even know the desires of our own heart, we can be deceived, God still knows. And so in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we're reminded Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We will give an account to God. And that's not simply an accounting of what we do and say, but also what we're longing for, our affections. In this law, we clearly see what we've seen Jesus highlight throughout this series. As a number of times, we've gone back to reflect on Jesus' New Testament teachings on the Ten Commandments. In other words, it's more than outwardly keeping the law. There's an internal reality. For example, Jesus said, it's, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I tell you, anybody that hates, and he raises the bar. It's not simply a matter of sparing other people's lives. It's also about our, uh, the affection we feel towards others or the anger, the hate we feel towards others. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone that lusts after another one has already done something in their heart that's contrary to the person and the purposes of God. That's how you define sin, anything that's contrary to the person of God. 
in this 10th commandment, it's not, it's not simply don't steal, it's don't even long for the possessions, the position, the power, the influence of others. Don't covet what other people have. God looks on the heart, and he doesn't want even our desires to be sinful. He wants our hearts to be full of um, righteousness and godliness. Now, coveting is to desire what others have for sure. That's fairly straightforward. However, it may be, biblically, it's a little narrower than we might think. So here, let me see if I can define it in contrast to jealousy and envy. Jealousy is a protectiveness for what's ours. We're jealous uh, for our possessions or our relationships. And jealousy is this protectiveness, and it can lead to greed. It's fueled by greed. It can lead to hoarding, not sharing. Envy is a disdain for the success of others, and it can lead to a violence. Cain killed Abel in part out of an envy that Abel had been affirmed by God in his sacrifices and Cain had not. So envy leads to this violent act. We can be violent with our words, we can be violent with our actions. Covetousness is a desire for what others have and it leads to a, a taking what they have. The jealous hoard, the envious kill, the covetous steal. You see, Biblically, coveting is more than simply wanting a red, car, a red sports car or a big house like my neighbors have. Coveting, biblically, is actually to want what they have, their possessions, their relationships, their, possession, their positions of influence, and in that wanting, not wanting them to have it. It's to want their red sports car and to not want them to have their red sports car. It's a whole nother level of desire in its sinfulness. It's actually to, to take or to long to have what they have, specifically their ox, their donkey, 21st century reality, right? Their car, their house, and for them not to have it. Pride fuels this type of inappropriate desire as there are a finite number of resources there are a finite number of opportunities in the world. There are a finite number of relationships. King David didn't want a, another wife in general. He didn't want a wife like Uriah's wife. No, he wanted Uriah's wife. And in wanting Uriah's wife, he didn't want Uriah to have Bathsheba as his wife. And he acts, he takes Uriah's wife, and in that act, that covetous act, wanting what was somebody else's, he commits many other, breaks other commandments. The seventh, don't commit adultery. It escalates, he commits murder. The sixth, consider the story of Achan. After Israel received the Ten Commandments, they cross into the promised land, the first city there that they conquer. They're, they're met with the city of Jericho, and they're strictly prohibited, don't take any of the possessions from Jericho. They're all to be the Lord's. They're to be destroyed. But Achan sees some of the wealth of Jericho. He covets it. He takes it. He hides it. So he steals, and he steals not from Jericho and the inhabitants of Jericho, but he actually steals from the Lord in that the possessions were to be offered to the Lord. Here's his explanation. Truly, I've sinned against the Lord. 
God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil of the beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. I wanted them, and I didn't want God to have them. I didn't want it to be offered to the Lord. I wanted them, and I took them. They're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Of course, he thought he'd gotten away with it. Right? The Tenth Commandment prohibits a longing. It prohibits a desire that evidences itself in, in theft, in, in outward actions of taking what's not ours so that others can't have it. He thought he'd got away, gotten away with it. But here the Lord sees what's in our hearts, in our minds, and the Lord demonstrates that he sees it. He outs Achan. For Achan's sin, he and his whole family are destroyed. They are stoned to death, which is a harsh penalty for sure. But God wants to send clearly the message that he takes coveting seriously. Why? Because coveting erodes the community of God. If you're in the habit of doing the going, going deeper questions that I write each week, this week you'll see that there is a question in the going deeper. It's in the bulletin that you receive. It's a question from Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira. Interesting New Testament story that parallels to some degree the story of Achan. Ananias and Sapphira lie about their donations, and they drop dead when confronted. Peter asked him, why did you lie to the Lord like this? And they drop dead as they're confronted. Clearly, God takes our coveting seriously because it erodes community. When we look across the neighborhood or across the office or across the room, maybe we're looking across the table and we're coveting the, the relationships of a sibling or a friend. It erodes community. It's impossible to really have fellowship, be in relationship, to share intimacy with somebody that you covet what they have. For this reason, Paul writes to the believers in 2 Corinthians, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We have to be very deliberate as a people to set our affections, our eyes, right? To give attention to what is eternal rather than what is temporal. I'll never forget the story of a friend. Um, he uh, served a large company, worked in corporate America, right? And um, in his, the, the corporate culture climate was hyper-competitive with sales goals and, uh, you know, a board that charts who's doing what and, and how everybody is performing in comparison to others, a, kind of a dog-eat-dog -dog culture. And uh, he went on a business trip, and he had done really well at the, you know, he had done really well in, in the company, but recently had uh, a new boss assigned to him. Uh, a man that was, um, I think it was 25 years his junior, was the man he'd report to now. No big deal, my buddy's pretty humble, and he realizes this guy's age isn't really uh, a factor to him accomplishing his goals. So he said, I'll keep running after my goals, and uh, 
and do my thing. Well, he goes on his business trip, and he shared an office wall. There, his office was next to his boss's office. And these walls, mind you, went from floor to ceiling, and um, there were large cabinets on this wall that they shared with carpet, wall-to-wall carpet. Uh, you can picture in your mind's eye, you know, a, a prestigious office in a highly competitive corporate culture. He goes on this business trip. He's away for the company. When he gets back, he realizes that his boss has moved the wall that they share in order to enlarge his office. I mean, we're talking about a foot, foot and a half to an already large office. So while my buddy's out trying to meet his goals, his boss is back at the farm making sure that his office is larger than those that report to him which meant moving cabinets, doing work on the ceiling, putting new carpet down. What do we have our eyes fixed on? What are we focused on? What are our affections given to? What are we running after? One second after we die, how important do you think that extra foot, foot and a half would have been or will be. One second after we die, the positions, the power, the possessions that so many that we're tempted, I'm tempted to fix my eyes on, how important will they be? It's one reason why fairly unashamedly at Glowing Bible Church, we invite people to serve, to give their time, their talents, their wealth, to the purposes of God, to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. These are Jesus' words. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Don't do that. Where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for your, up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where bosses don't move office walls. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also heart follows our treasure. What are we fixing our eyes on? Where are we storing up wealth? On earth? Where our possessions are depreciating in their value daily? Where record inflation is eroding our savings accounts? I heard this week I think it's over 9%. Where the volatility of the stock market is giving people ulcers? or in heaven. It is true. You cannot take it with you, but think with me here for a minute. You cannot take it with you. But here's the good news of the gospel. You can, in fact, send it on ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send your wealth ahead of you. You can store up. This is Jesus' teaching. You can store up for yourselves treasure in heaven by utilizing your resources for eternal purposes. So God prohibits coveting because it erodes community. He knows that, that wealth and possessions are deceptive. They're destructive. 
We live in a consumer society. Today's sophisticated marketers spend billions of dollars to work around the clock to steer our possessions, to focus us on different things that we don't yet have, telling us if we just have that thing, maybe it's a pop-up for some vacation, right? We're all on social media, so we're, the minute you search something on Google, right, a new rowing machine, it pops up on my social media feed. I've not yet bought it, they apparently know that. The algorithms are working overtime to direct our longings, to cultivate in us an affection for things in this world. Look what Paul writes to Pastor Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You're here today because you want great gain. You want to know what is eternal and and not passing away. How you can store up for yourselves eternally. How can you make the best use of your time? Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we're going to be content with that. Does that describe our lives? Contented? People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. I find myself thinking, asking, what about people who are already rich? That's us. If you make more than $40,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners globally. If you have enough disposable income to buy a book, to buy a book, you categorically are wealthy from a global perspective. That's how the World Bank would describe wealth. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. What about those that are already rich? How do we guard our hearts? How much more risk are we at? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Flee to what? Flee from the love of money. Flee from the piercing of griefs and the pursuit of wealth. Flee to righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How many of us are distracted, perhaps even wandering from the faith this morning because of our desires? Whether it's the desire for more possessions, more money, larger bank account, a relationship that's out of bounds. How many of us are soon to be pierced with many griefs, are suffering? from the piercing of many griefs this morning by the foolish decisions of desire that we've made. God prohibits coveting because he knows it erodes community. God warns us about not to covet because he knows that we can be pierced with many griefs if we don't cultivate contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it's not that the things of this world are evil in and of themselves. Look at what the author James writes. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. No, 
God is good. This world is his world. The possessions are his. What's dangerous is to set our affection on these possessions. 1 Timothy 4.4, one of my favorite verses. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be received. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Arguably, the the antidote to covetousness is gratitude, is thankfulness, is this cultivation of contentment. David Robinson, Hall of Fame basketball player, center for the San Antonio Spurs, my generation. He's older now. I grew up watching him play. He came to faith in Christ watching Michael Jordan embrace his first championship trophy for Chicago. Maybe you remember the picture of Jordan as a young man gripping that first trophy, kissing it. David Robinson's uh, center for the San Antonio Spurs saw the same image and it clicked with him. It'll never be enough for himself, he thought. As he watched Michael Jordan embrace that first championship trophy and kiss it with great delight, it occurred to David Robinson, I have multiple houses, many cars, and I'm running after that trophy. And it, he realized, I'm going to get that trophy, and it's not going to be enough. And he felt the vanity of running after the things of this world. And, it, and God used that to move him towards fixing his affections on what's eternal, that is a relationship with our Creator through faith in Jesus. And he, he gave his life to Christ at that point. Trusting in Christ. No longer wanting to run after this world. Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now in America, because possessions are so plentiful... Actually, I'm not sure if we struggle with biblical coveting of other people's possessions. Remember, to covet someone's possessions is to want what they have and to not want them to have it. To not simply want your neighbor's red sports car, but to actually want it to not be in their driveway and to want it to be in yours. But possessions are so plentiful here, I, I actually find myself struggling more with opportunity covetousness and I don't think I'm unique America describes itself as the land of opportunity right I actually think that we want the opportunities that others have we want to change place with people we covet their friendships their marriages uh, the parties they get to go to I want to go to the foursome, the golf outing that they get to go on. No, I want their place in that golf outing. The college that someone gets to go to, the lasting friendships they have because of that college experience. Let me ask us some questions that might help us by the Holy Spirit discern whether or not we struggle with coveting. Do we struggle with feeling others get all the breaks? we may be struggling with coveting. Do we find ourselves constantly tabulating fairness? 
Do we have trouble celebrating other people's good fortune and cheering them on? Are our conversations filled with comparisons? There's a fascinating exchange between Jesus and a religious leader that I thought I'd close with this morning. It highlights the necessity of the gospel as Jesus offers this person the law. And the gospel is a gospel of grace. Here's the opening to the conversation. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So eternal life's on his mind. Jesus answered, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, at first blush, it it can appear that Jesus is being ornery, that he's not wanting to answer the direct question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He gets kind of hung up on this good. But I don't think Jesus is being ornery. I think Jesus means to help this man. The man gives him what was a fairly um, mundane, everyday greeting, good teacher. And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. I believe from the outside of the conversation, Jesus is going to get to the answer, but from the outside of the conversation, the outside of the conversation, the very beginning, he's saying to this man, do you see me as good? Do you see me as God? Good teacher, no one's good but God. Why do you call me good? Do you see that I am God? That's what he's pressing this man on. Here's Jesus' answer to the question. You know the commands. Remember, the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commands, and then he gives him, do not commit adultery. Number seven, do not murder. Uh, Number six, do not steal. Number eight, do not give false testimony. Number nine, honor your mom and dad. Number five. Now, this is odd. Think with me a, a little bit here. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus holds up the law. As if to say, clear these hur- have you cleared these hurdles? Now, does Jesus really expect that if this man clears these hurdles, that he'll get into heaven? I, I guess you should say it this way. Does Jesus really expect that this man is going to say, yea, verily, I've cleared all these hurdles? Because Paul writes really clearly in Romans chapter 3, he says, no one will be de- declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Paul says really clearly, no one's going to keep the law perfectly. So, But Jesus offers this man the law. He says, you know the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the law. So he holds the law up to this man as if a mirror. How perfect do I have to be to get into heaven? And Jesus says, well, here, you know the law. Take a look. Do you match the law? Jesus is hoping that the law will humble this man. Good teacher, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Do you see that I'm God? No one will get into heaven by observing the law. Do you see that I'm good? Do you see that I am God? You're interested in eternal life. Do you see that I am God? Will the law humble you? Or will it make you arrogant? Here's his answer. All these I've kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. 
then come follow me, the only good person. Then depend upon me. Give up what you're depending on, possessions, come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for a rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The man is not humbled by the law. He says, all these I've kept. Jesus says, you still lack something. You still have this appetite for wealth that you need to be rid of. You've set your eyes on things below. Set your eyes on things above. Sell everything you have and follow me, the only good man. Put your trust in me. Do you see the gospel of grace there? Put your trust in me, not in your wealth. And Jesus sees how sad he is because he was a man of great wealth. He doesn't want to separate himself from his wealth. Jesus says how hard it is for a wealthy man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. To this, the listeners respond, those who heard this, how then can, who then can be saved? And Jesus replies, what's impossible with men is possible with God. How will a camel ever get through the eye of a needle? Well, even this morning it's happening. Rich people are trusting in the only good man for salvation rather than their wealth and their behavior. Even this morning, there's no one good but God. Jesus is God. Give up all that you have, trust in him, and receive eternal life. Count on him, not on your possessions. Set your affection on him. Set your desires on him. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, not on earth below. And you'll have treasure, and you'll have salvation. You'll enter the kingdom of God. If you're here this morning, and the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, and then that's an answer to prayer. We've been praying that the Holy Spirit would be working our lives. And, and maybe, as Sherry said earlier, the gospel is new for you, and you're checking out the claims of Christ. We're glad you're here. We would urge you, trust in Christ this morning. Don't trust in your wealth. Man, the suburban culture, we're, it's easy to set our affections on things in this world. Maybe you're a believer, long-time believer, and you've gotten off course, and you've been pierced with many griefs, and you've wandered from the faith because you've set your affections on wealth. Repent. Turn from that. Confess. Trust solely in Christ. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We want our hearts to be with our Savior, not with our possessions where moth and rust and theft take place and inflation and stock market volatility. No, we want our, our affections to be on the immovable rock, Christ, who is our only hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your goodness to us, your mercy in our lives as we live in a culture that tells us to trust in wealth and positions and our power, how easy it would be for us to say, along with the rich ruler, all these we've kept. 
while our hearts are full of sin and our affections are full of covetousness. We ask for forgiveness and pray, Father, that you would you'd help us store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That we'd fix our hope firmly on Jesus and solely on Christ. For his glory and our good. Amen. Before we go this morning, we want to kick off a capital campaign. Um, you might say, who kicks off a capital campaign in the middle of the summer? Um, but we're wanting to do that because we want to do some work before year end. So this capital campaign, uh, starting today, is aimed at raising $700,000 before year end. So about a six-month run uh, in order to pay off another church's mortgage. Uh, many of you have heard over the last few months that we have a vision here at Globe Bible Church to become a multi-campus church. That is, one church meeting in multiple locations. When we cast that vision last November, another church came to us, having seen uh, our advertisement for a campus pastor. This other church came to us and said, hey, could we be your first campus? And we taken, it's taken a while to get to know them, them to get to know us. And the elders believe this is what the Lord has, has brought to us, except that they have a large debt that needs to be paid off. Like so many churches, uh, Glow Bible Church is debt-free, but like so many churches, small churches in particular, this small church is laboring under some significant debt that's actually held them back from, in many respects, doing the ministry that they uh, could be doing. And so this capital campaign is aimed at paying off this debt, and then they'll be brought into the GEBCE family as our first campus. At the end of first service, Lene Schmidt, some of you may know Lene, um, she's attended here for, I think, over 30 years. She came up after the service and she said, I was, uh, she went to Poplar Creek last weekend to hear one of our elders preach there, Robert Steele. And she said, oh, it was the greatest time. You should get me up. She wanted to be a cheerleader. She goes, I used to be a cheerleader in high school. And uh, she, I said, we'll get you up front with some pom-poms and, and you, can, you can do your thing. But uh, she, she just loved what she saw over there and the opportunities to be a blessing to that church, their history, that community. John Vanderbilt is preaching over there this morning. Dave Wigman preached over there about a week ago, uh, a month ago now. And uh, there's some great opportunities uh, for reaching a community. So later this afternoon, uh, we will send out an email. And if you're on the email list of Glow Bible Church, then you'll receive in your, your inbox a letter that outlines the capital campaign uh, exactly the monies that we want to raise between, between now and year end, December 31st, $700,000. Poplar Creek is going to try to raise $100,000 of that, and they're a congregation of about 80 people. And, uh, and so you'll see this in the email. We're, we're asking for one-time gifts. We're asking for pledges. Uh, my family has made a pledge, so we'll play a little bit each month over the next six months in order to to meet our commitment. The giving should be above and beyond your ongoing giving to Glowen Bible Church's general budget. And so our hope is that if you're gonna make a pledge, you'd make the pledge by the end of July so that we have a sense of how we're doing and whether or not a December 31 uh, fundraising effort of 700,000 is, is doable. So uh, we'd ask you to prayerfully consider the part you could play in this. And if you have questions, 
Um, don't hesitate to ask staff or elders. Or if you don't get the email, I had somebody up after first service say, well, I don't get church emails. If you're not on the email distribution list, make sure you let us know. We'd love uh, to include you on this and so that you can get all the info. So uh, let's stand for the benediction and, um, and go in the Lord's peace. The Apostle Paul wrote that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So to him, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen? God's peace upon you.